Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast about how to get better faster. I'm Ravi Gupta, and this is a special episode because I was a former school principal and superintendent. And when I started back in 2010, there was a veteran school leader and superintendent, even back then he was a veteran, who came out of the KIPP network, who you know was kind of a star within the community, who everybody looked up to. He'd started some awesome schools in New Jersey and Newark, and really helped mentor a lot of people who came through the work. And his name is Ryan Hill. And you may recognize him because he's been a co-host of this podcast. He's led a bunch of episodes. But I wanted to take a step back for this episode and talk to Ryan about you know how he started within schools, how intentional he was about the first schools he started, how he's evolved, you know, what he felt was the keys to both his personal leadership and the leadership of that entire network of schools. And looking back just on this whole thing we call education reform, charter schools, et cetera, like his big ideas for what we got right, what we got wrong, major questions he has. So with all of that, Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ravi. It's great to be here. Welcoming to your own podcast. <laughs> so Let's start off here. How did you even get an education in the first place? Yeah, well, I didn't intend to be in education at first. And even when I joined, I didn't think I'd be in it that long. My dad was a teacher in very rural Wisconsin. He taught high school. He was the entire math department for his high school, taught everything from eighth grade algebra all the way up to calculus and even through in physics a couple times throughout the years. So I certainly valued education my whole life. But really what got me involved was two of my cousins grew up in an urban environment. They are biracial, African-American and white parents. And I would hear through them what their experiences were through the school system. And oftentimes they were very bad experiences. And then later in life, a couple of them ended up with also very bad experiences with the criminal justice system. So my intention actually was to go into criminal justice reform and to go to law school. But then I got this email from my college advisor that said, hey, do you want to check out this program called Teach for America? And so I looked into it. And I thought, you know, maybe I should learn a little bit more about the world outside of small town Wisconsin before I go into anything else. And so I joined Teach for America. They placed me in New York City. And even going into that, I thought that I would probably still go into policy or law or something like that, because that's where I thought the problems were at the policy level. And when I got to the school, what I saw was the problems were really with bureaucracy, leadership, or lack thereof. And certainly poverty was a big problem as I anticipated, but not in the ways that I thought it was. I thought that I would see under-resourced schools that didn't have what they needed. And what I saw instead was pretty well-resourced schools that just weren't using their resources well. And good, really hardworking teachers who the principal would either not sort of access their talents in the right way or just completely ignore or even get in the way of. And so from there, it just became, now that I knew the kids, it became a very urgent situation for me. And I just said, we've got to find a way to get all the good teachers that are out there into one building and just build something awesome. So before we get to your first school, when you talk about schools that are well-resourced but not using them well, what's an example of what that looks like in practice? Like, how do you see that? Sure. So I taught in Washington Heights in New York in upper Manhattan and I got there and what I heard from everybody was every kid's going to have a laptop because there was this new initiative. The district had gotten some grant and they were giving all the kids laptops. And when I got there, none of the kids had laptops. And in fact, there was just one computer lab for 1200 students and we could never use it. And so I was like, what's going on? And I asked around and a teacher said that there are a bunch of laptops. They're all in this 
room that they've been locked in for the last three years and no one had seen them. And then at some point they actually opened the room and all the laptops were gone, but they certainly weren't in the hands of the students. So that's one example. Oh my God. Do they even have a reason why they weren't handing these out for three years? No, none that I heard of. It was just the general state of dysfunction in the school. That's unbelievable. These are the beginning of the so-called education reform days. So you're recruited out of Ivy League school to join Teach for America. Well, I wasn't. I was a state school kid. Where did you go to undergrad? University of Wisconsin. Go Badgers. Oh, okay. You're a state school guy like me. Yeah, I was a Binghamton guy. So you're recruited in the early days of Teach for America. This is like when it's the elite special forces of colleges and you go teach. So how do you even find KIPP? And, you know, for people who don't know what KIPP is, what is KIPP back then? How did they find you or you find them? Back then, KIPP consisted of two schools. One was in Houston and one was in the South Bronx. And it was founded by two Teach for America alumni. So I had heard of it through the Teach for America sort of onboarding and training process. And what year is this just to situate us? 2000. Wow. You're old enough to have been my teacher in high school. That's wild. I think of you as so young. Holy shit. I both don't appreciate that and do appreciate it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I had heard of KIPP. And I'd heard of charter schools, but I actually, like a lot of kids coming out of college, to the extent I even had heard of school choice, I was against it at the time. I thought it took the kids who were sort of best off and put them in another place, leaving the district schools like the one I was teaching in with the students who were struggling the most. And I had bought that line. And so I wasn't really interested in charter schools. So I had met the district superintendent in the district I was in in New York for different reasons. But then he came back to me in my second year of teaching and said, hey, do you want to start an academy within your school? You can model it on KIPP if you want to, or on great charter schools, you can do what you want. And so I started down that path with some of the teachers that I worked with who I thought would be committed. And we were going to do things that KIPP does like extended school day, Saturday school, summer school, and that sort of thing. But as we went down that road, we just kept hearing no on so many things. It can't happen because of this. It can't happen because of that. We have a union contract. You can't have teachers working on Saturdays. And I said, what if they volunteer? Even if they volunteer, it can't happen. So we just kept getting no after no after no. So what was the selling point on KIPP back then? Because I heard you say extended school day, Saturday school, summer school. So it was mostly sold, if I'm hearing you correctly, on more time in school. Yeah, KIPP had five pillars and more time was a big one. And so was power to lead, which meant that the principal would have the ability to select their own staff. The principal would be able to manage their own budget and that sort of thing. And those elements were certainly not going to happen for me. Yeah. But even at the time, I had no idea that Kip was thinking about expanding. And so what I did was I called a friend of mine who I knew had started a school like the one that I wanted to start. And I said, how'd you do it? He had been very successful. And he said, I just copied Kip Houston. And so I called the founder of Kip Houston and I said, can I come learn from you? Even though there was a Kip school less than 10 miles away in the Bronx. And he said, you know what? We're actually looking for people to start more KIPP schools. We just got a big grant and we want to expand this across the country. And so he said, apply for this. And I said, I don't want to start a KIPP school because I've heard that charter schools only take selected top students in the school or whatever. I bought into the propaganda. Well, that was even the propaganda back then because I feel like there really wasn't a reputation of charter schools back then. I don't know exactly. I mean, there were only two KIPP schools. There weren't that many charter schools in general. It had just started to be something that people were even talking about. But even then we were hearing this, right? And the students that I had had the most success with relative to my peers or to others in the school 
were the ones who were actually the worst behaved and the kids that I thought, you know, wouldn't get into charter schools or would get kicked out of charter schools or whatever. And the KIPP folks told me, A, that's a myth. B, come see what we're doing. And C, you can recruit in whatever neighborhoods, in whatever schools, wherever you think the kids with the most need are for schools like this. And then also things like expulsion and pushing kids out or selectivity. Those are not elements of our program. And you can kind of do what you want on that or even more to the point, you shouldn't do those things. And so I liked what I heard. But then the main thing was when I went and visited, it was just so much better than anything I was doing or anything I had ever seen before that I just knew I had to learn from them. And so what did it look like? You know, I've read the books. I think some people in our audience probably have read the books, but even for those who haven't, you know, famously they're what, in trailers at that point in Houston? Yeah, in Houston, I think they had moved seven times in five years or something like that. They were in temporary space. Now they have beautiful buildings, but that wasn't the case at the time. And when I got down there, first of all, the school I was in was chaotic, right? Like fights, not just every day, but every moment of the day almost. Teachers screaming at students sometimes. It was so different from anything that I associated with the word school that I was uncomfortable even using that word. Then I get to Kip and I visit the school and it's a Friday afternoon and they're doing this thing called Song Fest. And so you have all these kids, probably fifth or sixth graders, sitting in a room, about a hundred kids in a big trailer basically. And they're just singing like pop songs together. And the vibe in that room was just so unbelievable. It was like nothing I had seen, even in schools I went to, which were regular public schools in small town Wisconsin, and such a world apart from the school that I was working in that, again, I just had to be part of that and had to learn how to do it because I knew it wouldn't be easy. I had seen really good teachers. There were a couple of them in the school who I just sat in their classroom and learned from, but I'd never seen this happen on a school-wide basis. And then when we got to see the classrooms, I mean, it was more of the same. Every single hand was up for every question. Kids were all paying attention to the teacher or to their peers when they were talking. They were excited about learning in a way that on my best days, I could maybe get three quarters of that. And so it was evident that a ton of thought had gone into it and that whatever they were doing was working. And so then you decide you want to start a school, Kip decides they like you. First, why Newark and what support existed back then? I can't imagine there was much. Yeah. And I wanted to be in New York because that's where I was at the time. And I knew the kids and their families and wanted to start schools for some of them or for their siblings. But New York, this was before Joel Klein was a chancellor, before Mike Bloomberg was mayor. And so New York was not giving out space to charter schools and space in New York for anything is scarce. And so I was starting to look for space. I kind of got ahead of myself and started knocking on doors of buildings in upper Manhattan. And the folks at KIPP said, you know, you're going to need a backup plan if it doesn't work out in New York. We just don't know what's going to happen politically. We don't know what's going to happen with facilities. And so I wrote a charter in both places. And during my training year, I was up in New Haven, Connecticut, working with Doug McCurry and Daisha Toll at Achievement First. Was it even Achievement First then? No, it was just Amistad Academy at the time. Yeah. Just one school. It became Achievement First. But at one point, Daisha said, if you're thinking about Newark, you should come meet my former classmate at law school. And he's speaking at the law school today. So she took me over there and it was a city councilman from Newark named Cory Booker. <laughs> and Councilman Booker said, you know, you've got to come to Newark. I'm going to be mayor next year. We're going to do great things for education. We're going to make this the place to be if you want to reform education in the United States. He did not win the mayoral race the next year, but he did eventually. And great things happened from there for education 
in Newark. The second Newarker I met, I was coaching basketball in Manhattan and someone who I learned a lot from, a guy named Nick Blashford, had started a big basketball program in Washington Heights. And I would coach games against him and I would learn from him and how he coached. And he said, you know, I went to school with this guy who is from Newark, can't stop talking about Newark. And if you're thinking about Newark, you need to meet him. And his name is Shavar Jeffries. So I met Shavar. Shavar is, as he said, he's from Newark. He was coming back as a civil rights attorney. And he is now, of course, the CEO of the KIPP Foundation nationally. But at the time, he was in civil rights law. And he just said, you know, we need more great schools in Newark. I'll do whatever I can to support you. And he eventually became our board chair. But the real thing that convinced me, in addition to meeting two really awesome and impressive people who were great cheerleaders for Newark, was when I was in New Haven at Amistad, I was seeing a level of discussion in the city about education reform that at the time didn't seem to be happening in New York. And the relative smallness of that city meant that that one school was having a big impact on the overall sense of possibility. And I thought, you know, Newark is a big city by many standards, but compared to New York, it's nowhere near as big, of course. And so my thought was, if we start a school and if it works out, if it's as good as we want it to be, then maybe that will have an impact beyond our school doors. And that has turned out to be true as well. And I think it's probably an important segue to just take a step back and be like, for people who are listening to this podcast who don't know what a charter is, by and large, they're nonprofit organizations that run public schools that are run independent of the school district, right? The sort of independence of the principal. That's the key. Charters, as we'll probably talk about, have changed quite a bit in some cases in terms of what they do with that freedom, but that freedom is largely the one thing that's been left unchanged. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes a district or a state, for that matter, will either pass a law or basically sign a contract with a charter provider or a charter operator. And if the contract is really good and ironclad and the district superintendent is really on board with giving the school the autonomy they need, then it can work out. But oftentimes what we've also seen is then there will be a change in administration. You know, the superintendent will leave and the next one will come in and want to exert more control. And the charter law, depending on who the authorizer is, it's usually a university or a state agency. So we are chartered by the state. And there's a whole charter law that says what the parameters are and what you have to follow. So we have to follow testing rules. We have to take the same state tests. In different states, it's different, but our teachers are all in the state pension system. But we don't have like a district telling us what curriculum we have to use or, you know, we're not subject to the same contracts and that sort of thing that the district is. Well, the pension thing is a big deal in Jersey because in the states I operated, Tennessee and Mississippi, they're not. And it creates this problem where it's hard to recruit veteran educators because they don't want to leave the pension. Yeah. And I think a lot of veteran educators, we've encountered this a lot over the years, don't understand in New Jersey that you can keep your pension. And so it's been hard for us to attract them, at least in the early days. But yes, you do get to stay in the pension system and it's a generous system. It's a good perk of teaching and we're glad to be able to offer it. So you spend a year, is it, building the school? Two years? It was a year, yeah. So the Fisher Fellowship at the time, named after Doris and Donald Fisher, the founders of the Gap, and Old Navy franchise, who were the big funders of KIPP. I think it was six weeks at, in my case, the Haas School of Business out at Berkeley. And it was a combination of education management classes and then sort of business management. So you learn how to budget. You know, we were all teachers. And so a lot of us, me very much included, didn't know the first thing about budgeting or financial modeling or anything like that. 
And most of us didn't know that much about things like curriculum design or anything like that either. And so we had sort of a six-week crash course in that. And then we spent the next six months visiting schools like Amistad, KIPP New York, Marva Collins Prep. Those were the three that I visited. And you'd spend like five or six weeks in each shadowing the principal, observing classes, and just asking many, many, many questions of everybody in the building about how do you do this. And so you open the doors. How old are you when you open the doors to the school? 25. 25. It was the same age. And so how did people take you seriously in New York? Or did they not? Like, how did you even build the respect among your teachers? It's a good question. I mean, we were very head down, do the work. And so we weren't trying to influence anybody at the time. We were just trying to make sure that we had enough students in the school to actually run the school and enough teachers to teach the kids and enough money to run the school. And so most of my time was spent in the first six months after I got out of the residency, then I had to find a building and then I had to recruit students and teachers as well. And so that's what I was doing during that time period. And that was a probably 20 hours a day, you know, seven days a week job for that time period and a couple of years thereafter. And we just put our heads down and did work. And in fact, a few years in, maybe three years in, I had a colleague who was like, oh, I saw the superintendent of Newark Public Schools at a conference. And I said, you know, there's a KIPP school in your city. Like, how's it doing? And she said, there's a KIPP school in our city. So <laughs> we weren't super well known. And it wasn't that we didn't want to build credibility. It's just we saw our job as building credibility by building a great school. And there was no designs on future expansion or anything like that. And so we were in that building seven days a week trying to figure it out. And you started as a middle school? It was a middle school. So the model in KIPP at the time was middle school only. And you start with fifth grade because fifth graders are still little kids. And so they still care what adults think about them and care a little bit less about the peer environment. And it's a good opportunity to start building culture at that age, a strong college going, you know, achievement oriented culture. And so we started with fifth grade and then every year we added one grade after that. So it was fifth grade, 80 students, four teachers. It was about the same for us too. We started fifth grade too. I agree that fifth grade is a good grade to start with. They're so goofy. Totally. So I imagine you kind of look back almost fondly on the days. I felt this way too, when nobody knew who we were. Like it was really a curse. A couple of years in, we had a big bullseye on us and became a political lightning rod. But like those early days of being able to just focus on the work without expansion, without politics. That was some beautiful stuff. I would say the three months leading up to opening a school and then the next two years, I would say were the hardest years of any professional experience I've ever had. Just that whole period, that sprint. Yeah, I would say the same. Now, how long did you serve as a principal? I was principal for four years. So we started out, you know, it was hard to find 80 students to convince to come to this little four classroom school that nobody had ever heard of. After one year, we had about 200 kids on our wait list. And then after four years, we had over a thousand. And so we needed to open another school to meet that demand. And so we opened our second school, which is called Rise Academy and had similar levels of success with that. And then at one point we got to a wait list size of 10,000 students. And so we said, we actually need a growth plan here. And so we planned to open five schools and then we turned that into 10 and now we're at 23. Wow. 23 in Newark. No, 23 is in all three of our cities. So 14 in Newark five in Camden, and then four in Miami. Well, okay, we're going to get to that crazy growth pattern because that's a wild growth pattern. But what was it about your school that attracted 10,000 people to the wait list? When you look back, like what were the design elements that mattered the most? The thing that we would pitch to kids was different than the set of things that eventually attracted more of them. So when we were kind of going door to door, knocking on doors saying, if you have a fourth grader who might want a different school next year, you know, here's an option. A couple district schools let us in to talk to 
to their kids. And so we would talk to a whole class and we'd say, look, it's going to be so much fun. But the real kicker was we'd say, and you get to come to school on Saturday and we're going to serve McDonald's at lunch. Oh my God. Shame on you. So, Shame on yes, you, I, I know. <laughs> but that seemed to work, even though we were telling kids that they were going to come to school 7.30 to 5 every day, that they were going to come to school on Saturdays. You would think that with fourth graders, that wouldn't be too appealing, but we had a good pitch. And so they would go home to their parents and say, hey, mom or dad, like this school is going to serve me McDonald's on Saturday. <laughs> and then the parents would look at the rest of the brochure and they'd be like, oh, okay, this is pretty interesting. Did you make good on that promise? Or when did you, at what point did you t take the McDonald's away from them? Because I can't imagine that lasted very long. McDonald's presented procurement issues. So pizza was what we ended up with. So not a lot better, but probably better than McDonald's. Okay. It's a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. Trying to get kids to come in for extra time is such a fun puzzle. You know, we used to do this thing we called Pirate Academy for spring break. And I used to dress up like a pirate and I would not break character. I would be, they used to call me Mr. G. I would be Captain G and I would send invites. Like I would make it like an exclusive thing. And nice. kids would be like, I got invited to Pirate Academy. Meanwhile, it was just a remedial reading program, but we did all of this elaborate theater just to do that. It was some of my favorite days. That, the Halloween party, like those days were awesome, especially when you're 25, making things fun for kids also turns out to be fun for you as well. But. Oh, for sure. Nobody loved the Halloween party at Republic more than I did. They actually got rid of it after I left. And somebody years later recently was going through a storage closet and they were like animatronic clowns and like a, a woman whose head turns 360 degrees. And they're like, what is all this stuff? Where do you want me to send this? I almost had them ship it to me here in New York, but I got nowhere to put it. We got a little carried away with our haunted house. So it probably wouldn't fly these days, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Sam, I didn't have people sign waivers and I realized how crazy that I was back then. And we used to have the kids, you probably did the same, the kids were the cast, like, and we would scare the hell out of everybody. Oh yeah. But okay. So, and then you turn into a superintendent and I'm imagining your school was very traditional KIPP at that point, extended school day, yeah. probably rigorous to the extent what we knew what rigor was back then. I think you probably have changed your thinking about what that is, but rigorous academics, yeah. using data to drive instruction you know, probably aggressive model of coaching teachers, giving them a tons of feedback. Actually, we weren't great at that. We were very focused on school culture. And most of us didn't know all that much about coaching teachers and what we would consider now to be rigorous instruction. We definitely didn't know much about the tests were a lot easier back then. Our kids did unbelievably well on them. But when I look back and compare how we were teaching then and how we were coaching teachers, is nothing compared to what we're doing now. And so we've evolved and learned a lot over the years on that front. We were focused on a college-going culture, really hard work, both for the teachers and for the kids, and having a ton of fun in our schools as well, as we were just talking about. And those were kind of the big things for us. We used to say, like the old, it's the economy stupid line. We used to say, it's the culture stupid. We wouldn't say that to the kids, but we said it to ourselves because like, we believed if you have a strong school culture where the kids really, you know, have an end outcome in mind, in this case, college, and, you know, we would take them on field trips. Our first field trip in fifth grade was to Princeton and we would just try to, one of our board members once described it as, you know, in, in some communities where everyone has been to college, if you're a kid, you're just kind of in a river that's flowing toward college. And if you actually 
don't want to go to college, you have to swim upstream. Whereas in some communities where not as many people have gone to college or, or where the majority of people have not, you don't have that same current sort of aiding you on the way there. And he said, it seems like what you guys are trying to do is create a really strong current to help carry the kids to college. And that was kind of how we looked at it. And so everything we did, we named our classrooms after colleges, you know, again, field trips. When they got older, we would take them and they would sit in on college classes and all that stuff. And the whole school was designed around building a culture of achievement and college going. And how do you feel about that now? Like, and maybe this is a good segue to like what we've learned over time. I was just talking to somebody yesterday at an event who he was at a tip school at a certain point. He went to success and now he runs his own school. And he now runs a school that, among other things, helps kids find apprenticeships and technical education. And we were talking about like this debate around college. And I think we were both saying... We still believe in giving as many kids college as an option as possible, but are less offended than I would have been back then when a kid decides not to take that option. You know, like if a kid now is like, I want to be a carpenter or a plumber. Back then I would have tried very hard to steer them into college. Now I think I would be totally cool with it. How do you guys think about college? Certainly our views have evolved probably for a number of reasons. One is the environment has changed. College has gotten a lot more expensive there's a lot more questions about, do you really need college to be successful? But that said, our kids are generally up against so much in life that when they get to the job force, a lot of the jobs, if not most of them, that they are going to want, that are going to set them up for success in life are going to be jobs that require a college degree. Teaching is an example of that, right? We have a lot of kids who've come back and taught in our schools, and that's awesome. But if they didn't go to college, you, you just can't even get certified, right? And there's a lot of jobs like that. So it's still, for most of our kids, very important. But what we learned over the years is some kids don't want to go to college right after high school. Some kids do find jobs that don't require college that fit their skills better. Some kids have challenges that prevent them from going almost no matter what, right? And one of the most heartbreaking things, the downside of the college push was some kids would come back and they'd say, you know, I dropped out of school, but I didn't want to tell you because I knew you'd be disappointed in me. And we said, no, look, we're here to support you no matter what. But they had heard eight years of go to college, go to college, finish college, finish college. And so they had internalized that. And we want to be there to support our kids no matter what. So we have shifted our focus over the years to be about college and careers. And we want every student to have the chance to go to college. We want them to be academically prepared and qualified. And we still do lean toward pushing kids to go if they're questioning it, but we take it on a student by student basis. And sometimes it's the right thing and sometimes it's not. And regardless, we want our kids to know kind of what the other pathways are. And, you know, in this country, about a third of the adults have college degrees. And more of our alumni have college degrees than that, but still a significant portion of them do not end up with college degrees and we want them to be successful as well. And so we've had to modify our high school programming, especially to not only emphasize college, but also to give them access to internships and other kinds of jobs that don't require college degrees to you know, give them models of what other people are doing that are successful, but didn't go to college. So now we do both. And what is the percentage of your 
graduates now who graduate from college. So we do like a six-year college graduation rate. So our most recent number was 40%. So in Newark, I think about 10% of adults have college degrees. And so we are at four times that. And again, we're over the national average. We would like that number to be higher and we're working to push it north. But we're proud of the fact that it's four times what our students likely would have experienced if our schools didn't exist. Well, it's amazing. And so what has KIPP done? Because I'm aware that there's a thing called KIPP through college. I don't know a lot about what it does. Like both what did you do locally and what has KIPP done over the years to try to push those numbers up and help kids? And what was learned? Like I'm aware of a debate as I was entering the work and that there was so much emphasis on whether kids were enrolling in college and not enough emphasis on whether they were finishing college. That was the debate back then. Catch me up on where we are right now. Basically, the phases of KIPP went, first we had middle school and we got them scholarships to really good private schools. And then a bunch of them would leave those schools for a whole bunch of different reasons and would be kind of stuck in very bad comprehensive high schools. And so we started a high school. Then we graduate our kids, send, you know, 80, 90 percent of them to college and a similar thing happened there. And the way I used to describe it is our kids were sort of walking a tightrope through college. All kids are walking a tightrope through college. For some kids like me, if I had slipped up or something had happened and knocked me off the tightrope, my parents would have been there as a safety net. For some of our kids, that's true. For some of our kids, that's not true. And so we needed to provide that safety net and get them back up on the high wire if something happened. And so we started this program called KIPP Through College. Now it's called KIPP Forward, but at the time was called KIPP Through College. And it's basically counselors. So we obviously have guidance counselors who help kids get into college. And we've done a much better job nationally in KIPP of matching kids to a school that will work for them. So that's part one. But then part two is when they're there, they need someone that they can call and say, how do I figure out what should I major? And I'm thinking about these two different things. What should I choose? What are the pros and cons? Or on our end, we can say, how many credits do you have? Have you signed up for enough? Are you sure you've got all the graduation requirements? This is something I could have used when I was in college. And so we have counselors who do that. Or, you know, if something bad happens and during the pandemic, this was a bigger need than ever, there'd be kids who would be stuck at school and couldn't get home or they either didn't have the money or the trains weren't running or the buses weren't running. And so they couldn't get home. And so we would go up and get them and bring them back. And so for a variety of reasons, our kids need support on their journey, as we used to say, to and through college. And KIPP through college and now KIPP forward is about that. And then what we found was our kids would graduate college, they'd have a degree, and a lot of them would go on to great careers. And some of them would go into jobs where you're like, you didn't go to college to have you know, a job at an Amazon warehouse. And so what's going on? And we realized that some of them needed help engaging in the process of interviewing for getting and keeping a job that was sort of worthy of their college degree. And we then made it about KIPP through college and careers. And now we support kids in that pursuit as well. So at some point, we can't be with them for their whole lives, you know, sort of holding their hands. But through that time period from obviously now they come to us in kindergarten and through the end of college, that's really, we view them as kind of once a Kipster, always a Kipster, and we want to make sure they're set up for life. And KIPP is, you know, you were in the early stages of their growth, but it's a franchise model. So correct me if I'm wrong. So people like you go out and start a school and they eventually turn into a lot of times regions of schools. Like so right. Randy Dow, who I knew in Nashville, roughly the same time as you, goes to Nashville, starts one school, turns into many schools. Josh Soya up in Kipp Lynn is starting Kipp Lynn. It turns into Kipp, Massachusetts. And 
It's now grown. How many schools are there around the country, roughly, for KIPP? Over 250. Wow. And they're run on the franchise model. And I know there's kind of been some changes to that, but roughly speaking, it is as decentralized a charter network as there is in this country. There are others like Uncommon down the street from you that our co-host Doug Lamov came out of and Stacey Shells came out of that's more top-down and more structured in how they do things. What level of control over the programming do you think, looking back now, makes sense for a network? How many hours or years do we have to discuss <laughs> this? Since we regionalized, this has been the ongoing discussion. So KIPP, you're right, is decentralized. In the beginning, it was schools other than a few rules. We had pretty much full autonomy over what we did within the law. But as we regionalized, we stopped opening sort of single-site schools around the country and started opening them in cities where we could build infrastructure. And so with infrastructure does come some centralization, but the centralization is within the region and different regions kind of approach that in different ways. We remained pretty decentralized on a lot of stuff. But then in 2015, we switched from whatever the old testing regime was to taking the park test, which was a million times harder. Which for our listeners is the common core aligned test. So for people who are not like really in the middle of education world, it's, you know, went from sort of more basic skills, rote memorization, multiple choice tests to more rigorous critical thinking, more writing, I don't know, fill in the blanks, conceptual math. So the test became harder. Way harder. And our kids did horribly on it. And we looked around and we said, oh my God, we thought we were doing a good job. And now we're realizing we've been shortchanging our kids. And the only way out of this is to get a more coherent curriculum. You know, teachers can't all be deciding what to teach just by themselves. We need something that works K through 12. We needed to do much, much, much more training. To add all those things, we had to centralize quite a bit. Every first year teacher that I know, or almost everyone, their biggest problem is they're a little too nice. <laughs> nice is the wrong word, but they're a little too loose with the rules up front. And tightening up is tough. And that's what we were doing. We were tightening up. We were actually taking back some autonomy. And that change process was really difficult. But we went and visited a lot of great schools. At, at that point, we did go up to Boston. We visited Edward Brooke. We talked to the folks at Uncommon and lots of other places. And we learned an idea of public schools. We learned what it is that they centralized at what point in their growth and why. And some people just come out of the gate saying everything needs to be centralized. And sometimes that works. I think success is more like that in New York. And obviously that's working for them. But we wanted to be intentional, not overshoot on this front because also there's only so much change that an organization can withstand at one time. There's also a talent issue, right? Like Eva Moswitz and success can bank on the fact that you put a, any competent person, halfway competent person in their system and they're going to do well, right? It's like the New England Patriots, but, but really smart, ambitious people don't put up with that level of structure. I wouldn't, you wouldn't either. Like you and I wouldn't start schools. We're not the type of people who would have started a school within a system that somebody else created and they just told us what to do. And so that's the balance you have to kind of strike is like, all right, even if you know what the right answer is or you think you know, you got to make sure you create an environment where talented people want to come to work every day and be creative about their work. Yeah. And at the same time, not be captured by that. And so totally agree with what you said. If Kip at the time that I was applying to it said, here's your playbook, and you have to run this exact school, I wouldn't have been interested. That said, one of our colleagues said at one point, we're a bunch of pirates and we're trying to become a Navy. And so we did have a bunch of very entrepreneurial people who don't like rules. And then we were trying to build a system that balanced that tendency with the need for some rules and some guidelines and some central processes. And that was tough. And we had to evolve as leaders and throughout the organization 
in a way that would actually help us scale and continue to grow with quality. And that required a different set of behaviors from us and from everyone in our organization. And so at the same time, like I said, we don't want to overdo it and make it so centralized and standardized that it makes it hard to innovate or we can't attract the folks who want more autonomy than that. And so we've tried to pick our spots, but it's an ongoing debate. There's not a single day that goes by that we're not debating, should this be local? Should it be centralized? Should it be regional? And now, you know, we have multiple layers. We have the KIPP Foundation. We have our New Jersey and Miami region. Then we have cities, Newark, Camden, and Miami. And then we have obviously schools. And all of those have different levels of decisions and decision rights that the people within those entities own. And what made you decide to grow to Camden and Miami? I, as somebody who did schools in Tennessee and Mississippi, you must have gotten the same warnings that I got, which was multi-state growth is a disaster. Impossible. That's what they told me. I will say it is a lot harder to do multi-state growth than multi-city growth. And we've learned a lot about it. But if we want to expand opportunity and access to kids around the country who don't have it, then someone's got to figure this out, which is part of our mindset when it came to Miami. But in terms of Camden, so I think we had about eight schools in Newark and some community leaders in Camden came to us and said, hey, this really seems to be working. And we're about to pass a law called the Urban Hope Act. It's basically a better charter law, a little bit more money, a little bit more freedom, and we'll support you politically and any other support that you need. And so, will you come to Camden? And I said, nope. I said, we got our hands full with these eight schools and we have a growth plan. We're trying to get to 10. I can't do it. And then they came back and they said the same thing. And I said, still can't do it. Then they came back and I said, all right, before I say no again, I said to my team, let's write down all the conditions, even if we think they're impossible, that would have to exist for us to expand to Camden. So we wrote down a list of like 10 things and took them to the folks who we were talking to. And we started talking about them, you know, we would want to bring in other charter school operators because we don't want this just to be about us. Our vision for Newark at the time, now it's expanded, was for Newark to be seen as a city of world-class public education. We're not going to educate all the kids in Newark or Camden or Miami. And so we wanted to be part of an ecosystem and help develop an ecosystem that was working for all kids in the city. And so we said that we want to bring in a partnership with Teach for America. We want partners with other charter schools and that sort of thing. We need a superintendent who's going to have a bold vision for Camden and all these things. And so we thought it was an impossible list, but one by one, those things fell. But in the process, we went down to Camden and an article came out. I think it was like around the day that we went there that said that in the city of Camden, the whole city, only three seniors graduated college ready, three seniors. This is a district of, you know, 15, 16,000 students at the time, maybe 1,000, 1,200 seniors. And three of them were college ready when they graduated. And then we got to Camden and we saw the level of need. We met a few families, we met a few kids. And we said, if we don't do this, what happens? And so we thought about it a lot and we took the chance. And Camden has done unbelievably well there, Uncommon Schools and Mastery Charter Schools. There were a lot of charter schools in town already that are doing really well. And then, you know, most significantly, Paymon Rahanafard became the superintendent and, in my view, was the best superintendent in America and put together a plan that both brought in more school choice, but also brought the district results up and did a lot beyond that. And so we're really glad we did it. <laughs> and so when it came to Miami, the superintendent of Miami was looking for partners, especially to work in the neighborhoods where the reforms in Miami, Miami has had a lot of 
great stuff happened in education, but the reforms haven't gotten to all students, right? And so there were some schools and neighborhoods in Miami that were not seeing the results that they wanted. And so they thought maybe bringing in KIPP would help. And they approached the KIPP Foundation, who then asked us, like, what's worked in Camden? And a lot of what worked was that we had you know, an infrastructure and some talent that we could deploy to Camden. We had a really good school leader who we sent down there to become an executive director. We had, you know, a finance team, a fundraising team, all that stuff that a single school doesn't have. And those first two or three years that you said were so difficult, you get to leapfrog that when you're part of an existing organization. So we eventually agreed to open the schools in Miami, and now we have four schools down there as well. How do you spend your time? So you have regional superintendents, I take it. You have principals, you have a network team. What does your day look like? Every day is different. It's the best answer for that. But yeah, so I have executive directors who report to me. I have a chief academic officer, uh, chief financial officer, et cetera. And so a lot of it is working with them either one-on-one or as teams to do the work. And then a lot of my time is spent in schools. Like I am at this point, not the expert in running schools that the folks on my team are. We have really good people doing that work, but I need to get into the schools and see how it's going and where I can lean in, do so. And then a decent amount of the work is, you know, going to fundraising meetings, working with either regulators or legislators, political figures, et cetera, to make sure that our schools have the resources and the freedom that they need. And in times of growth, a lot of my time was spent on that as well, figuring out how to best structure the organization to make sure that it grows well. And then, of course, my boss is our board. And so I work with something like 20 people on our board. And so we have... whoa. It's a big board. Yeah, it's big. But, you know, they're all volunteers who care deeply about the work. And so a lot of my job is to ensure that they're informed about how things are going and feeling good about the organization or aware of the places where, you know, there are challenges and learning from them. And so many of them have either run businesses or other kinds of organizations and have a lot of, you know, deep expertise that has been really helpful in scaling our organization. You look back and, you know, those four years you spent as principal versus all the time you spent as superintendent, which of those two do you find more enjoyable? Principal, for sure. Yeah, I agree. There's a certain point where you don't know everybody's name. I'm sure when you have that many schools, yeah, you probably passed a long time ago for you. And long time ago, the work changes. I think dramatically around that period of time. Every step away from the kids is a bad step. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so obviously, like when I'm in schools, I see our kids, but I don't know them at the level that I did. And so yeah, when you're a principal, you know the names of every obviously teacher. You know the names of every kid, every parent. We knew every single one of them. And then you open two schools and now you're dealing with adult issues all the time. And then right. three, four, 15, whatever. The intellectual challenge and the change has been great. And the core reason that I do it and others like me do it is kids need access to better schools. Yeah. Becoming a parent has really radicalized me on this concept. <laughs> but like, you know, I got to shop for schools for my kids. I got to decide what town to live in. And I based that decision mostly on what the schools were like. And parents who don't have the option to just move wherever they want need and deserve really good schools. And there's so many parents in this country who don't have that option right now. And so the sort of deep unfairness of that, going back to my cousins and what they experienced, helping to solve that is the best part of this job. But in terms of the day-to-day work, principles is super hard, super draining at times, an intense job, but most days were awesome ones. I feel like being a principal is like an athletic experience. If you do it right, obviously there's some principals who just sit behind a desk all day. I don't understand that, but 
you know, I don't think I sat down unless I had to sit down with a parent. I wasn't sitting most of the day. Like I was just running around classroom, classroom. And that's fun. I didn't even have a desk when I was a principal. Yeah. Well, I had like a table that had a bunch of stuff piled on it, but I never sat there. Mine was the broom closet because we didn't have my first year, two years, we didn't have our own building. We used the night school at Tennessee State University. So it was the broom closet of the Tennessee State University night school. And we would have to take at 4.30 p.m., we'd have to take the entire school and turn it back into a night school. Oh my God. It was basically like putting on a play every day. Strike the set. That's amazing. It just shows you the building. The building doesn't matter until it matters. Totally true. The building we were in was terrible. Like our kids had buckets under their desks because every time it rained or snowed, there would just be leaks everywhere. And so we had to teach them to ignore those distractions. We didn't have control of the building. We weren't the landlord. So windows were broken. Sometimes the heat didn't come on. It was in terrible condition. And so you can teach under those circumstances with the right mindset and help your kids achieve a mindset, but it's totally up that yeah, kids have hard. to go to schools and facilities like that. What should have happened is the state should have given us a building like they give all the district schools and we wouldn't have to go out and find our own and figure out how to get it renovated and raise money and all that stuff because that distracts from the core work. And it led to our students having facilities conditions that were not suitable for them. Now our buildings are great. And we have a great facilities team, a great real estate team. We've done over $500 million of development of facilities in New Jersey. And they have the buildings they deserve now. But yeah, like our mindset was just do what it takes, no matter what the conditions are. Well, with that, it's a good place to stop. We'll have many more of these conversations, Ryan, but thanks for joining us. And for our listeners, you know, this is just an opportunity to meet our hosts. This is very heavy on the education speak, which I know is usually for other podcasts. We like to kind of broaden outside of the classroom, but, you know, I just wanted people to know about all the amazing work you do. This is just like the tip of the iceberg. You know, there's so much we could have talked about today, but Ryan, thanks for joining us. Anywhere, if people want to check out the work of your schools, where they can go to see it. Yeah, www www.kipnj.org or kipmiami.org. Great. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you.